PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. I think for folks who are first learning about these genomic rehabilitation interfaces, hopefully will come to realize that this is a topical area that they're going to be faced with more and more. How do we know that the same thing's not going to happen here, that we come up with all this knowledge that doesn't translate into mainstream therapy? In the United States, you have a law saying that based upon a genetic test, health insurance cannot be denied. Here in Canada, we don't have that legislation. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, Neuroplasticity and Genetic Variation. A recent perspective published in PTJ examines the link between aerobic exercise and secretion of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, as well as genetic variations that affect this link. In this discussion, authors Cameron Mang and Dr. Lara Boyd, along with Dr. Stephen Wolfe, discuss the present and future of genomics and rehabilitation. And now our moderator, PTJ editorial board member, Dr. James Carey. Hello, my name is James Carey, and it is my honor to serve as moderator of the discussion of the paper titled Promoting Neuroplasticity for Motor Rehabilitation After Stroke, Considering the Effects of Aerobic Exercise and Genetic Variation on Brain-Derived Neurotrophic Factor. The authors are Cameron Mang, Kristen Campbell, Colin Ross, and Laura Boyd. In this perspective study, the authors review neuroplasticity in stroke And more pointedly, they review how brain changes after stroke are influenced by the genetic presence of BDNF. This is a very important topic as more and more studies are emerging showing how the brain can be conditioned with a variety of interventions. But not all patients respond the same to these interventions, and this may relate to the genetic predisposition of each patient. We have two of the authors here with us, the lead author and senior author, Cameron Mang, is a PhD candidate in the graduate program in rehabilitation science at the University of British Columbia. And his colleague there is Dr. Laura Boyd, who is in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of British Columbia. Cameron, please offer us a little bit more background of yourself. Hi there, I'm Cameron Meng. I am a PhD candidate, as Dr. Carey said, studying under Dr. Laura Boyd. I completed a degree in kinesiology at the University of Alberta and a master's of science also at the University of Alberta, and I'm in the third year of my PhD. Excellent. And Dr. Boyd? This is Laura Boyd. I'm a PT-PhD. I am an associate professor here at the University of British Columbia, and also I hold the Canada Research Chair in Neurobiology of Motor Learning. And in case you were wondering, we get to name those ourselves so you can guess what I'm interested in. Very interesting. And as a discussant, we have with us today Dr. Steve Wolf. And Steve is a professor of medicine and a professor of rehabilitation medicine in the Division of Physical Therapy at Emory University. Thank you, Jim. I have a primary interest in studying novel interventions to improve movement capabilities in folks who've had strokes and in older adults who have postural instability. 
I'm particularly interested in learning about mechanisms that underlie our ability to regain movement following CNS injury or in conditions in older adults who have compromised postural control due to cognitive deficits. Okay, well then, Steve, let's start with you and have you ask the initial question, and then we'll get responses from the authors, and then we'll go back and forth like this, but we'll start with Steve. Well, I just want to say before I ask my first question that this is an incredibly timely topic, and I'm not totally sure if Dr. Boyd and her colleagues were aware of the fact that back in 2009, the Physical Therapy Society Summit consisted of an external review of the profession by folks in 24 different disciplines and organizations. Amongst the recommendations of this critical view of physical therapy came the thought that there is a greater need for the education and understanding of areas of molecular fundamental science and technology. And amongst the four areas that were identified for further discovery and understanding was the genomics rehabilitation interface. So in that context, this is a remarkably timely article for information acquisition for both clinicians and for students. The offshoot of the past meeting was the formulation of a group of both PTs and non-PTs that have the acronym FIRST for Frontiers in Rehabilitation Science and Technology. And amongst the four areas that they are exploring to create databases and electronic resources are genomics and rehabilitation interfaces, bioengineering, regenerative rehabilitation, and telehealth. So this information is remarkably timely and foretends a lot of what we might be doing as physical therapists in the clinic as we learn more and more about the genomic makeup of the patients we treat. So in looking at this interface between aerobic exercise and molecular pathways that may be engaged through aerobic exercise, the question arises that with respect to brain-derived neurogrowth factor and the favorable influences upon reacquisition of movement and movement control, Do you folks suppose that there is an ideal threshold of aerobic exercise that's needed to induce these molecular signaling pathways? And if so, what might that be and how does it go about being persisted over time? This is Cameron here to answer that question. There is evidence that there is an intensity-dependent effect of this upregulation of BDNF such that lower-intensity exercise may not induce the same effect as higher-intensity exercise. In healthy individuals, there's some work to suggest that high-intensity interval training might be one of the best ways to do this. And there's now even a few papers out there to suggest that inducing a sufficient lactate response by the exercise might be key to inducing the BDNF response to these molecular signaling pathways. And if I can just comment, this is Laura. This is one of the things I think we really have to wrestle with as researchers at this moment. If you look at the healthy literature, people are exercising at these intense intervals. It would be very difficult to translate those intensities to patients. So we need to be really clear on how hard do we have to go and for how long in order to make a safe and efficient translation into the clinic. And certainly if we're thinking about an acute stroke population, those are going to be essential parameters for us to understand. I think those are very good points, Cameron and Laura. I can imagine a clinician reading this paper and wondering, well, how am I going to apply this information with respect to exercise paradigms in patients who've had strokes? Um, just wanting for you to share with all of us what advice you would give them in terms of titrating the exercise program and how you would go about inducing therapists to convince their patients to persist in such programs well beyond their therapeutic sessions. I think something that is promising about trying to apply this to patient populations is that most of the chronic disease populations 
who are typically much more deconditioned than young healthy populations seem to be inducing a fairly large BDNF upregulation effect with lower intensities of exercise compared to the young healthies, suggesting that there might be sort of a relative intensity effect based on the original conditioning of the individual. In terms of trying to maximize the effect, a point that we try to get across in the article is that when you use interventions to try to prime the brain for neuroplasticity, or in this case using aerobic exercise to increase BDNF to prime neuroplasticity, it's really important to then pair that with the experience or practice of whatever behavioral change you're trying to affect. So in that sense, we suggest that pairing the aerobic exercise closely in time with motor practice may be one of the best ways to optimize the effect of the aerobic exercise on rehabilitation. Well, just as a follow-up to that, to what extent do you suspect that elements related to motor learning would help to facilitate the engagement of these neurotransmitters and specifically brain-derived neurotrophactor to optimize the totality of the patient's improvement and performance? So the key piece here, and I, I harp on this all the time, is you still have to do the work. The exercise is just getting ready. Then you've got to turn your attention to really a focused practice session in order to kind of optimize the effects and the overall effects of that acute bout of exercise that preceded the rehabilitation intervention or the motor learning practice session that comes next. Something that I think is really important is that you have sort of different stages of motor learning. So when you're practicing the task, you're maybe encoding the information. And following the task, you have this sort of offline consolidation of that information. So in that sense, the timing of the aerobic exercise can be very important. If you provide the aerobic exercise before the practice, you might be using the aerobic exercise to sort of prime this encoding. Whereas if you provided the aerobic exercise after the practice, you might be using it more to prime the consolidation. And I just think that's a really important interaction between the timing of the exercise and what we're trying to prime specifically. So do you, Cameron or Lara, have any knowledge about potential biomarkers that might allow us to predict what the threshold might need to be? So the first biomarker that comes to mind for me, just from some recent work that I've read, is it's potentially lactate. There's a little bit of work out there now, a paper from 2010 by a gentleman with the last name of Schiffer, who actually found that the lactate might be somehow driving this upregulation of these neurotrophins and neurotransmitters. Interesting. There are also some data suggesting that some of the TMS or non-invasive brain stimulation measures offer some evidence that acute bouts of exercise are facilitating long-term potentiation or excitability in the cortex. So there was a paper by Michelle McDonald, who's from Australia, showing that a change in the magnitude of response and motor evoke potentials after exercise, and what they did, which was kind of clever, was before and after exercise, they assessed motor evoke potentials, and they applied a train of non-invasive brain stimulation called continuous theta burst. And then they looked to see how large the magnitude of that effect was on then retesting those motor evoke potentials. So that's one way to do this. We, of course, have a study underway, which is why we wrote this review, and we're taking a slightly different approach, but also then trying to index and see if there's a TMS biomarker that will tell us how excitable we've now made that cortex or maybe what the neuroplastic environment is looking like at this point in time after exercise that might offer some neurobiological evidence that we've had this effect upon the brain itself. 
And one of the problems with the BDNF literature is we're not testing BDNF from the brain, and I think it's really important that we acknowledge that. We're testing circulating BDNF and assuming it's a surrogate for what's happened in the brain. And that may be the case, but we can't be 100% confident. So we're also employing these other electrophysiologic-based measures to kind of assure ourselves of the effect. Well, let's pursue this topic a little bit more. I think for folks who are first learning about these genomic rehabilitation interfaces, hopefully we'll come to realize that this is a topical area that they're going to be faced with more and more as patients come into their clinics with their 23andMe profile that seems to indicate to them what they might be carrying in terms of polymorphisms. Do you want to say a few words of caution so that the information that's so nicely presented in this paper isn't overinterpreted to mean that one polymorphism may be existent and at the same time allow people to realize that there may be other competing events that can deter or limit the success of a given intervention? Yes, I think that it's really important to acknowledge the point that you've just made that if you have the BDNF VAL66 met polymorphism, it's not all over. There's still somewhere to go. And so there's many different polymorphisms that can influence how somebody learns a motor task or how they respond to rehab after stroke. And it's going to be interactions between each of these different polymorphisms that will then ultimately have a larger impact on how people respond to rehabilitation. And if I can just add in as well, the other piece that has to be layered in here, if you take a really careful look at the genetic work, is that, of course, our genes are modified by epigenetics. And so whether or not you carry this gene, it may be expressed in very different ways, dependent upon your epigenetic profile. Very excellent points from both of you. And it just seems that perhaps one of the take-home messages that we can share with clinicians and students listening to this podcast is that perhaps part of the interest and challenge to us in working with such patients is the attempt to find novel ways in which we can retrain them. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. You know, my real interest in this topic came just exactly from those lines. I've been studying people with stroke for a long time now and just trying to get a handle around what are the sources of variability from person to person has become a real interest of mine you know, who responds, who doesn't, and why, and then what, as a therapist and researcher, could I come up with that might drive their responses in a clinically meaningful fashion to help them recover from this major brain lesion. And so I think that really all this work is doing is just giving us another tool in our therapeutic toolbox that we can use to try to adapt our intervention to be more effective for that person. I think that's a very excellent point, Laura. And for those who are gaining their first exposure to this whole notion of our genetic makeup, what suggestions do you have for those of us, both clinicians and students, who have not learned much about this in our coursework or in education courses we may have taken? How do we become more familiar with this content and work to integrate our understanding of it into what we do as therapists? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question for myself. I delved into this area of research simply because of what Lara had discussed earlier, this interest in why do some people respond to rehabilitation and why do some people not? And even why do some people respond to our non-invasive brain stimulation protocols and why do some people not? And with a kinesiology background, I'm strong in physiology. However, I didn't have a great molecular biology background. 
So for me, it was a few trips to the library, and I found that there's some really good books that are not so deep into the science of genetics, but more just offer a big picture understanding of how these genetic profiles can influence how people respond. And in part, that's why we wrote this paper. I think that as people who educate rehabilitation science students, it may become incumbent upon us that this really should be a part of the basic curriculum that we're offering to our students as they're entering into a different healthcare environment than honestly the one that I trained for 20 years ago. Excellent. I have a related question. With this growing information about the genetics of an individual and the implications that might have on decision-making for treatment or perhaps not treatment or a different kind of treatment, how does that intersect then with ethics? What are the ramifications of decisions about a person's care based on their genetics? How does this inform us as physical therapists and occupational therapists and speech pathologists to be ethically concerned with regard to genetics? I think that's a really important question. It's interesting. I just was at a meeting on the ethics of genetic testing. The takeaway message there was it's one piece of evidence, but it shouldn't be used to determine an entire course of treatment. Interestingly, legislation was discussed at this meeting that I was at. And in the United States, you have a law saying that based upon a genetic test, health insurance cannot be denied. Here in Canada, we don't have that legislation. And so people are quite concerned and calling for work to be done for legal protections. Very interesting. I'm going to ask one last question of my own. You state in your paper, and you quote another paper for that sentence, despite major progress in the understanding of neuroplasticity, very few new treatment interventions have resulted from this research. How do we know that the same thing's not going to happen here, that we come up with all this knowledge, but it doesn't translate into mainstream therapy? So how can we make sure that we go along the right path to have this actually make a difference? This is Laura, and I'll take a hit at that because it's something I've actually been thinking about a lot. So I think that what we have to do is understand that there's no single scientific discovery that's going to totally push us ahead exponentially in terms of translation to therapeutic practice. I was recently giving a talk about non-invasive brain stimulation, and I was asked to directly address the question of, is this useful in neural rehab? My answer to this is always, not yet, but, and the but really comes from, I think what we've learned from the TMS literature is that you can change or prime the brain to make it more neuroplastic and then facilitate learning and perhaps rehab outcomes. So are we going to have a TMS stimulator in every clinic? No, we're not. It's not that direct of an effect. But what it's taught us is something really fundamental about the brain, that you can prepare the brain to learn with an intervention. And that has really directly led into this work. So then how do you best prime or prepare the brain? What we have been able to do from this neuroplasticity research is expand our horizon of what we understand that through behavior, we can manipulate the brain to do, so we can manipulate it to be more plastic, more excitable. And then the genetics piece is, how do we most efficiently get there and for whom? And if I can jump in, this is Cameron. Something that I think is extremely promising about the use of exercise specifically as a primer for neuroplasticity is that it's something that has global effects across the body that are positive. So it's not just neuroplasticity that we're priming, but we're also improving cardiorespiratory fitness and conditioning people after stroke. And so 
exercise is something that's already being recommended for people with chronic conditions such as stroke. So now if we just take that and we try to just use it in a slightly different or more optimal way, we can have even more robust effects. Whereas something like non-invasive brain stimulation, it isn't there yet. It isn't being used regularly in patient populations. So I just think exercise, because of its global effects and the fact that it's already there in clinics and being prescribed, makes it a really promising avenue to sort of try to prime this plasticity. Agreed. Okay, Steve, I'm going to give you the first conclusive remark, and then I'll turn to the authors for theirs, and then I'll wrap it up. Okay, thank you very much, Jim. Whether we're educators, researchers, or clinicians, I'd like to believe that the reason we pursued this profession is because of our desire to discover something new that will be helpful to our patients, whether it's in the laboratory or in the clinic. I would like to think that years from now, people will look back on this paper and maybe even this podcast as a turning point in new discovery that will have profound implications for bettering the patients that we serve and will serve as an impetus for open-mindedness in our ventures to learn new things and apply them even faster than we will with these discoveries. And I once again applaud you for this outstanding piece of work and hope that it serves as a stimulus for further thought amongst our entire profession. Perfect. Thanks, Steve. And Lara and Cameron, final remarks from yourselves. This is Cameron. I'd just like to say that I really appreciate this opportunity to discuss our work a little bit further with Dr. Carey and Dr. Wolf. And we wrote this article just to focus in on two areas that we feel are really exciting in post-stroke rehabilitation research. And we feel that they have great promise in potentially enhancing our ability to promote motor rehabilitation after stroke. And this is Laura. I would just echo that and add in that I think that this is a really exciting time to be in rehabilitation because we have this knowledge that may enable us to become much better practitioners. But I also will offer a bit of a caution in that this is a first step. There is a tremendous amount of discovery still to follow. But the promise of learning how to harness and then manipulate neuroplastic change in a positive way, I think, is extraordinarily exciting. And I look forward, frankly, to watching Cameron's career and learning lots more from him. And I hope that others will find this a very tempting topic and go out and learn a bit more about it. Very good. Well, I will conclude myself now by stating that I am very impressed with the paper and with the discussion that we've had. I think we always realize that there are responders and non-responders to therapy. But now to dig deeper into that realm and to try and figure out why and let that guide future treatment is important. How to fit all this into our educational curricula? Uh, I don't know, but we'll do it because it is a very timely and important topic. And so I appreciate your contributing this major information to the literature and look forward to seeing more from everyone. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening.